But uh, I know a lot of folks like to have what you got down here. Some of them's got big, nice buildings, family life centers, got everything but God and the truth. And when you don't have that, you don't have anything. This is an amazing story. Amazing story. It's it's just incredible what I'm about to read to you. Look here at verse number 54, Matthew 27, verse 54. And again, all you ladies that's cooked, you've made special effort. Those of you been here brought your children, made special attempt and effort. Brother Mike thanks you for that. He thinks he appreciates that probably more than I do because the pastor, that's your heart. Your people come. You can't get help. You're not here. And uh, so your faithfulness is not unappreciated. The Lord appreciates it too. And now I know we ought to be willing to do that without even being, without even being mentioned, but it ought to be mentioned because I know what you go through, the fight and the aggravation that we all go through to serve the Lord. And if you're here tonight and lost, what you've had to pile through just to get here, the devil aggravating you and uh, all the accusations and the doubt. So everything's been done. I want to I thank you and everything you've given. God bless you. I, I, that's my weakest point. I don't know how to thank people. So I'm going to let the Lord really thank you one of these days. <laughs> and he will. He will. Back your pastor up. Get behind this thing. Just keep doing what you're doing and keep believing God. As long as the church is here and the Holy Spirit's in this world, there's hope of salvation for the lost and revival. As long as he's here. Verse 54. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Now there's an emphasis here on not just one man, and that's the emphasis I'm going to make as a centurion. But it wasn't just him. It was him and they that were with him. That's the soldiers that he was responsible for. They all said this. Truly this was the Son of God. You say, well, that words are cheap. No, you don't understand what that was. That man just said in that day, in that hour to make that confession. You didn't just say stuff like that. And what I want to read you a verse. Just you can turn there if you want to, but just one verse. Luke 23, 47 companion scripture. Now, when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. So you've got two different accounts here of given what the centurion said. He probably said more than that, but this is all the Holy Spirit had to be recorded. You know, the Bible's not all that's said like sermons, like Simon Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. You think for a minute he stood up for 3,000 people and didn't preach no longer than what's recorded in the Bible. Well, you know better than that. What God gives is a synopsis of what he said, a summary of what he said, and like an outline of what he said in Acts chapter number 2. If uh, everything the Lord did was written down, the books couldn't contain them, the Bible says. But... uh it's an amazing thing what this centurion said. Truly, this was the Son of God. 
And then certainly this was a righteous man. How did that happen? You've got hundreds of people. I don't know how many. There might have been thousands. Christ is crucified right beside of the main highway. The north road, north of Jerusalem, is where Christ was crucified. The road that runs to Damascus is the very road that Christ was crucified beside of. And there was a little, they would, on a little hill, they would crucify a man so that the Roman government would make sure the most people saw what happened to those that committed insurrection against the government or did a capital crime. So you've got the time of the Passover. Jews are flooding into Jerusalem from everywhere. And they're passing by seeing this man and this great crowd that's gathered together and all that's transpiring there. And the Lord is dying and the majority of them mock the whole time. They jeer, they mock, and they laugh. Even after that, the Lord uh, cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in the Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, they mocked him as if he called for Elijah. I, now you think about this. All this stuff that's happened. Darkness on the land for three hours. Black as a thousand midnights. Said so black and dark, you could almost feel the darkness. And when the light comes back, they're still laughing, mocking, and jeering at Christ. You talk about a, an absolute terrifying thought of the blindness of a man's eyes and the hardness of a man's heart till God unveils his heart. It's terrifying. Scribes and Pharisees didn't let up one bit. They're jeering, laughing, and mocking, but here is a man, the most unlikely candidate in the whole crowd is the one that God saves. I mean the most unlikely. Out of the, all them people, if you were to give an estimation of who might come to faith in Christ that day, it would have not been this man. A bloody, brutal, sadistic, barbaric centurion. A professional, trained killer of the Roman government and the Roman army. I'll talk to you a little bit on the centurion's heart unveiled. And uh, Brother Clayton again, pray for us, we. Amen. The Bible declares that over the eyes of the Jewish people, there is a veil. That means that they've been blinded judicially because of their sin. You've never heard of many Jewish people ever being saved. There's not many saved in the world today. There are days are coming, but for the most part, those that are saved are the Gentiles. When you think of that word veil, when a woman puts a veil over her face, it's to hide her appearance. You know, the women, the burkas that they wear in the Muslims' countries and how the veil that they wear wire is so you can't even see an inch of their skin and also think of the veil that God had in the temple I mean in the tabernacle also between the holy place and the holy of holies it 
It was a symbol that marred or barred men from the presence of God. On top of that tabernacle were curtains. On those curtains were cherubim. On the veil were embroidered cherubim. Why was that? Because in the Garden of Eden, what was it that God put at the entrance to keep men from going in? It was cherubim with flaming sword that said you cannot come any farther. Farther, even on the uh, mercy seat in the Holy of Holies where the blood was sprinkled, there were these two cherubims that said, you can't come without the blood. So that veil separated man from God. Even the flesh of Christ is said to be like that veil. And Christ's flesh was torn that you and I might have access to God when God ripped that veil from top to bottom, 60 foot high, 40 feet wide. Two teams of oxen could not have ripped it apart. The size, the width of a man's hand, four to six inches wide. And God ripped that veil from the top to the bottom. That was symbolic of the flesh of Christ being ripped that you and I might have access to God Almighty. That barrier, that wall of separation has been ripped from top to bottom. And when that veil was rent, there was a door opened up to the Holy of Holies. And for the first time, those priests even saw inside the Holy of Holies. And man now has access unto God. This centurion had a veil of deception over his eyes. But little by little in this story, God begins to remove the veil so this man might declare unambiguous, deliberately, clearly, dogmatically that truly this was the Son of God. You couldn't take a D10 caterpillar and drug that statement out of that man's mouth if he did not believe it. He was a proud man and uh, the repercussions and the peer pressure and the scorn that would have been heaped upon him for saying such a thing would have kept him from ever making that statement. Now this centurion confessed two fundamental truths that every person must know about the person of Christ. Number one, he confessed his deity Truly, this was, I mean, without debate, without argument, without controversy. This man believed as much as he believed he has breathing God's air that this man was the son of God. That's his deity. In Luke 23, 47, this was a righteous man. That's the God man. He confessed he was God. He confessed he was a man. Not just a man, but an innocent man. A holy man, a just man, a righteous man, and a sinful man. This man, no doubt, was an expert in execution. It's no small reason that Pilate chose him of all of the 
men he could have chosen to be responsible for the execution of Christ. This man was chosen and chosen, no doubt, because of his expertise. But he said, this man, never seen a man like Christ. Never seen a man love like Christ. Never seen a man forgive like Christ. Never seen a man as humble as Christ. Never seen a man as authoritative as Christ. Never seen a man as powerful as Christ. I mean the Lord Jesus as he watched him when the Sanhedrin delivered him to Pilate. This centurion would have watched him from 6 o'clock in the morning and the 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And he got his eyes set upon him. He began to watch him. And he confessed, he's God and he's man. My two favorite verses because it's what God used to open my eyes to the gospel that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, that's what he did. The Lord Jesus, that's what he did. The Lord, he's God. Jesus, he's man. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus shalt believe in thine heart. That's what this centurion did. His lips spoke what was in his heart. I say that because there was no doubt in what he said. Surely this was the Son of God. He had saving faith. When God gives you faith like that, you believe something and all the professors in the world cannot change your mind. What you know is the truth. Shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. So here is what this man said. The very person of Christ is summed up. Truly, this was the Son of God. Certainly, this was a righteous man. Now, when you think about this, this is the bottom. This is the crux. This is the bottom line of the crucifixion of Christ. Why was he crucified? Because he claimed to be the Son of God. Did you know that? You say, well, he died for insurrection. Why Pilate had never crucified him? He's already said, what, four times? I find no fault in this man. The only reason that he crucified Christ for insurrection is because he had to make it legal to the Roman government. He couldn't crucify Christ for blasphemy. Why, Caesar would have left him off of his throne. He had to have a legitimate and legal reason. But the very, very real reason that Christ was crucified was over what this centurion said when he died. Truly, this was the Son of God. What was the railing accusation of Satan against Christ? Matthew 4, 3, at the temptation, the tempter came to him and said, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. He takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. If thou be 
the Son of God. Cast thyself down. That's the point of contention. That's the difference in heaven and in hell. Who is Christ? Who is he? What was he? What did he do? I cannot believe that his blood can be a payment for my sin. If he was just a man, he's got to be more than that. He's got to be more valuable than that. You know, the value of Christ's life, the value of his person, the value of his blood is why God the Father will forgive you of all of your sins because of who died, who he was, and what he did. And the centurion had it right. He glorified God. That's what the Bible said. Now this man's a pagan. He's godless. They believe in multiple gods. They even believe Caesar's God. While these Romans, they're of a very illustration of godlessness. Read Romans chapter 1. And if you can get through it without just about saying that ain't wrong, that's America. And it'll make you want to throw up what was going on. That's the society that Christ lived in. But this centurion confessed there's one God. And this is truly the Son of God. Everything he ever believed, he repented of. The deception that had veiled his eyes, he repented. Up the sin he had practiced in, he repented of why because he recognized Christ is the Son of God, a righteous man, a holy man, and what he's a doing must be a holy thing. And through this process, God took the veil off his eyes and he understood what the saith God about Christ. Well, that's so in my life. That's so in your life. I know for God saved me. This thing of Jesus, I couldn't get a hold of. I couldn't understand it. Now, I don't know why. Well, I do know why. But I've been taught it all my life. I mean, you're in Christmas plays and uh, you go to Easter and you hear about the resurrection but it never clicked with me till the day God saved me. And that's what, listen, this thing does not come by human intellect, human understanding. Nobody but the Holy Spirit can really reveal to your heart who Christ is. Matthew 26 and 63, the high priest answered and said unto him, I jure thee by the living God that they'll tell me whether thou be the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said. That means just as you have said. Henceforth shall you see the Son of Man ascending on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's a reference to the Messiah from the book of Daniel. Verse 65, then the high priest ran his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need we have witnesses? Behold now, you've heard his blasphemy. Of what thank you? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. 
Christ was crucified because he claimed to be the Son of God. Listen, after Pilate had Christ scourged, he brings him out and says, I'm going to tell every one of you, I find no fault in this man at all. Take him and crucify him. He's mocking them. They say we can't. We don't have the governmental authority to crucify him. And Pilate said, behold the man. He's trying to get them to have sympathy on the scourged body of Christ. But the chief priest and officers saw him. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said unto him, take him and crucify him. I find no fault in him. Jesus answered him, we have a law and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. That's the difference in heaven and hell. Do you believe in your heart, not your head? Have you trusted in your heart that Christ is the son of God? Matthew 27, 39. Sidebar right here, I have. Matthew 27, 39. They that passed by reviled him, uh, wagging their heads. Here's what they said. Save thyself if thou be the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Is it any, uh, think about, difficulty of understanding? Is it hard to understand why Christ is the center of all the attacks of Satan? He's the target of all the attacks. Talk about God till you blew him the face. Talk about the Holy Spirit and nobody gets upset. You mention the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all hell begins to revulse and volcanoes go off and earthquakes in the devil's kingdom. Why is that? The Son of God is the Savior. That's why he's the means by which we can be saved. Chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders saying, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. Now, I am emphasizing this for a reason. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Then the thieves on each side also cast the same in his teeth. Now is this not remarkable that this God, godless, pagan, centurion saw it? And none of them did. I'll tell you, God in his mercy had this centurion had a strategic position that day in spite of his barbarism and brutality and in spite of his past. Thank God he was the man, but the most unlikely man that God has got in the midst of that crowd to rebut everything they've just said for 
six hours. Here they are mocking Christ that he said he was the son of God and the man with the most rank standing there that day of the governmental officials he looked them square in the eye they're mocking, laughing and jeering and said truly this was the son of God. Oh what a remarkable thing that God gave this man the power to confess Christ. You know, you'll never have victory till you confess him. Never. Man, at the church, Brother Jimmy Hamby, I probably told this. I know I did last week, I believe. Hey, he was here last Thursday night. I believe he told me he made nine professions. He said the Sunday morning God saved him. He wouldn't even tell it because he didn't trust himself. And said for three months, he wrestled that thing. Then he got to thinking, man, I'm thinking different. I'm a talking different. I'm acting different. And it dawned on him, hey, this time you really got the goods. He said one Sunday morning, he hit the floor testifying that three months earlier, God saved him when he saved another man. And uh, for even knew that he'd done it, all the power of confessing Christ publicly, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, he wasn't ashamed of me. Anyone that believes on him shall not be ashamed. Shame of the power of a public confession here tonight. We're among friends that this Roman centurion put his reputation, his prestige, and his job on the line to publicly look that crap in the face and say, Yes, I don't care what you say. Surely, without debate, without controversy, this was the Son of God. And he was. What a blessing. Truly. Boy, what assurance. Without a doubt, this was the Son of God. The Lord brought faith to this man's heart. But he did it. He doesn't do it by casting some religious magic wand over your head. He does it. How does God take away that veil? He does it by the truth. That's why, Brother Mike, even this week until tonight, this meeting's been extended because souls are hanging in the balance. And he knows that the only way that veil is going to be taken away is by anointed preaching of the word of God. Look at the testimony of Christ's death. This event brought about the confession of this centurion. When a man has been saved by the grace of God or a woman, boy or girl, they look back over their life. They can see how God did it. How God unveiled their eyes and their heart and brought them to the glorious salvation of Christ. That's what this story is all about. Listen to Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, watch this a minute. This is the climax or the zenith 
of the whole experience. Now, you wouldn't have thought this. Brother Jesse, you would have thought this man would have cried this at a different point in time. It's like when you got saved or I got saved. You look back on it and it was something so simple that God used to bring you in. But if you look back on it, that it wasn't just that one simple thing. That wrestling match had been going on a long time for some of us. Listen, this was just the icing on the cake. This is the straw that broke the camel's back. He's 99.9% convinced that this is the Son of God. But when Christ died like he did, He screamed out. I believe Christ's voice was so loud it shook that whole crowd around there. He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He said it's an impossibility for a man that weak to do what he just did. That ain't just a man. There ain't no way that that's just a man. What I just heard, what I just witnessed, and the Holy Ghost made it believable to his heart. I mean, who can believe that Christ was born of a virgin? Who can believe that he lived a sinless life? Who can believe that his blood can cleanse the sin of humanity? Only the Holy Ghost can make that believable to your heart. But that's what God's Word does. It gives us saving faith to believe it. He said, Father, into thy hands. He's in control of his life. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he gave up the ghost. Now there's a lot that took place that day. Think about this. Not just the centurion, but all those men with him too. Here's the key thing. Brother Mike, that's why places like these camp meetings like Camp Zion, for example. That's why, uh, Eric, they're so powerful. Because you're locked in. And you have to watch Christ all day and all night. That's why revivals like this are so important. It's so hard to get people to do what the centurion did. They were watching him. Not texting on some a little telephone. They didn't even have one back then. They weren't passing notes. They were listening. They were watching. And a man that watch Christ gets focused on Christ. He'll find out something. Hallelujah. Hey, he watched his actions. He watched Christ's reactions. I believe it's his reactions convinced him as much as anything. This, this, let me just say this right quick. This sin turn, as I said, would have watched Christ from the time he was delivered by the temple guards to Pilate to be tried. Here's the process. He's taken a Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, to Pilate. To Herod, back to Pilate. That's the uh, the process Christ went through. The civil trial before the Roman authorities and the ecclesiastical or religious trial before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. But now Christ has been delivered. 
into the hands of this centurion and his men to guard him and watch him. He was there. The guard never left Christ. A man that's deemed to be this kind of a criminal, even though Christ was meek as a lamb, they didn't know if his followers would try to break in and set him free. Therefore, this centurion would have been right on him the whole time. He heard Pilate as he talked with Christ. He heard Pilate ask him about his kingship. Christ told him, my kingdom is not of this world. I am a king. I've got a kingdom. But it's a spiritual kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. Now one day, he's going to have an earthly kingdom, but not yet. And he heard the mob cry. He said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll build it again. He said, I am the son of God. He heard the chief priest cry out. He saved others. Even his enemies had to admit he saved others. I'm sure that centurion said, what does that mean? Saved them from what? A spiritual kingdom. What is this? And God began to unveil his eyes and bring him to the place that a Christ is a savior of sinners who's paying a sin debt. He heard the seven sayings of Christ. He saw his submissiveness. No resisting. No fighting. No complaining. No blaming others. No cursing of the soldiers. He heard the testimony of his death, but he saw the triumph in his death. Now, there's nothing more humiliating and degrading than crucifixion. You know what made this thing worse? The Roman soldiers particularly hated the Jew. You know why? Because any nation that they conquered, they had full sway. But when they come into Jerusalem, when the Romans scourged you, they did it till they got tired of it. Jewish law, you could only scourge a man 40 times, and they normally done it 30, uh, uh, 40 saved one, which was 39. When they came into town, they put up their banners that Caesar's God. They couldn't do out on Jewish territory that had an all-out revolt and a bloodbath. I mean, the Jews had particular rules and uh, observances and allowances of the Roman government that the normal nation did not have. There was a particular hatred for the Jew and especially somebody that claimed to be a king. But he saw Christ die. He saw him die voluntarily, deliberately, and consciously in total control of his emotions. Never cried out one time in vengeance the only cry that he had was a thunderous cry of victory he heard Christ say not I am finished but it is finished he knew what tetelestai meant it means the debt's been paid paid in full oh God it's taken away the veil from his eyes to bring 
bring him to that place of real salvation. This centurion had seen other men die, fight their way to the bitter end. You know what their sport was in that day, don't you? Gladiators had a man that would not fight was considered uh, the greatest insult to the crowd in the Colosseum. And a man, it didn't matter if he lived or died. They wanted to see that man fight to the bitter end. They wanted to see him fight for his life. Men were made heroes when actually all they were doing was trying to survive. Military men were made heroes, claimed they fought for the glory of Rome, when in actuality most of them were just trying to survive. But here's a man, not fighting a bit, not resisting a bit. Where's the heroism in this? Uh, Where is the macho status in this? Where's the pride in this? I mean, uh, this is a weakling. This is a man like I've never seen. But the more he watched him, he saw he was the master of nature and the master of death. But he allowed men to lead him as a lamb to the slaughter. And he had to scratch his head and say, what does all this mean? And God's unveiling his eyes. And a great darkness shrouds the land. Blackness for three hours. Boy, don't you know that centurion's got his hand on Christ. He's going to make sure nobody steals his body. He takes his job serious. He's watching him. He's hearing every word that he says. When Christ died simultaneously, there's a great earthquake and the rocks rent. And the graves have flung open. And the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom again. This man's crying out. This ain't no mere man. This is not a normal man. Christ controlled the time of his death. It's so important. You need to know he died at the right minute and the right second. He commended to the Father his spirit. And that's what this man saw. That's what converted him in the end of Christ. He saw Christ chose when he died. Who chooses life and death? God. So who is this man? He's a son of God. Why did Christ die at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Some of you know this. 12 o'clock high noon was prior time in Jerusalem. Three o'clock was the evening sacrifice. And at three o'clock, when that Passover lamb was being slain, and the Lamb of God yielded up His Spirit to the Father and the earthquake and the rocks rent and God opened up many graves and the veil and the temple was rent. What did that earthquake say? It said Christ died under the curse of God. Boy, this earth shook at the awfulness of the Creator dying. This is a signal that Christ, as I said, died under the broken law. 
What did God do in Exodus 19? What did Christ the law giver do? On Mount Sinai when he gave Moses a law. There was a great earthquake. What happened uh, when Moses came down over the mountain? The law was broken. Man's under the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? Condemnation. Death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But on another mountaintop, not Mount Sinai, but Mount Calvary, the lawgiver dies for the lawbreakers. And God signaled that he accepted the death of Christ, that Christ died under the curse of that law by shaking that whole town with an earthquake. The earthquakes in horror. The enormity of all that's taken place. Now I can just hear the devil, because it ain't you, it's the devil. I can hear the devil putting this in your mind. Well, if I'd had the experiences of the centurion, I'd be saved. Well, that other, the rest of that crowd had them experiences. They wasn't. All those chief priests had them. All those religious leaders had them. They saw what this man saw. They heard what he heard. They knew what he knew. They saw how the miracles of God, but they were not convinced. Why was that? I'll tell you, this man had a heart that was seeking after God. He saw sin. He saw the holiness of God. Hey, listen, when you think about this, I, I never thought about this till last night. This centurion is the man that's in charge of these hundred men. He's got great distinction to do such a duty that he is. He's responsible for whatever happens to Christ. The buck stops with him. Now, uh, this is the man. Think about this. This is the man uh, that heard Christ, heard the seven sayings of Christ. And the thing that I believe started it all was when you imagine in your mind the torture that Christ is about to experience. From who? This man. This man and his men. Now you think about what they did. Here's a man that authorized. He no doubt was in on it. But he authorized his men to mock Christ. They had in that day what they called the king's game. And they played this on Jesus. I've seen that there's a few places in Israel where Christ literally walked that's still there today. And uh, uh, the Pilate's judgment hall, the praetorium is still there. And the stones are still there. And the markings on those stones where they played this game with Christ are still there. They've been marked off in squares, sort of like a hopscotch game. And you rolled the dice. And they played this especially with men who were guilty of insurrection. And when they rolled the dice, if it come up three, then Christ would have to move three spaces over. And that three might symbolize uh, how he's to be hit on the head. 
And then they roll the dice and it's one. And he moves one square back. And that will not mean that they take his clothes off. And they roll the dice again. And this will not indicate that he's hit over the back with a stick. That's the king's game. Who authorized that? This centurion did. Who were the men doing it? These officers that were with him. They blindfolded him. And they hit him. And say prophesy. Who hit you? They put a crown of thorns on his head. To mock him. Hey, hey, you mean you are a king? How dare you compare yourself to Caesar? And then they put a reed in his hand. Put an old faded out Roman soldier's robe upon him. Bowed down before him. Made light of him. And then spit upon him. The most degradating thing you could do to a man was to spit upon him. And they did this with glee. They did this with great satisfaction. Christ was bruised and bloodied by the hands of these men. These Roman soldiers had no mercy. It was a centurion that stood there and ordered the flogging of Jesus Christ. It was a centurion. I don't know. He might have participated in it as two men would line up one on each side and take turns flogging a man's back they drug him through the streets of Jerusalem they drove nails in his hands and feet they took the wooden cross lifted it up in the air and jammed it down in the ground that there's something that happened that day that got this man's attention what was it where did it all start he didn't start before this. They, he didn't mock anymore after what I'm about to tell you. When they put the nails in the hands and they considered a hand all the way up to here, the nails in his wrist, it was called your hand. When they put the nails in his hands and feet, that's when Christ looked in his eyes and looked in those soldiers' eyes and cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine that? What they've just done to him. I'll tell you, that's not when the earthquake in Jerusalem happened. There was an earthquake of Holy Ghost conviction went off in the soul of that centurion. How dirty he now feels. The presence of Christ is so holy. How dirty he feels. He can scarce bear the thought that a man could love him enough to plead with God for his forgiveness. The veil is fallen off of his eyes. Oh, I'm talking about how God brings a man to Christ. And then his last words, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Boy, I think about our precious Lord. Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was written twain from top to bottom. And the earth did quake. And the rocks ran and the graves were open. And the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake. And those things that were done, they feared greatly. 
it wasn't just Christ saying, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. When they saw all these things, how patient God is to take the veil off your eyes. What he puts up with. People join the church. They do everything but bow to Christ. Church members, baptism. When that veil of unbelief and doubt and confusion and deception falls, is it not amazing that right when the final veil fell off his eyes, the veil was rent in the temple? What am I trying to say? When that last veil comes off your eyes, you'll see Christ dying for you. And by saving faith, you'll have access to God. That's how it all happens. Salvation is in Christ. This centurion reveals the mercy that God worked in his heart. I never even thought about this till last night. Here's God's strategic man. First thing he does is to rebut the Jewish authorities. Not a Jewish man. Not a Jewish rabbi, not a theologian, but a pagan, barbaric, sadistic, centurion, hard, trained, killer, converted. And he can rebuts that crowd that's been mocking Christ. Matthew 27, Mark 15. Surely this was the Son of God. Again, Luke 23. Certainly this was a righteous man. Now in closing, there's another strategic thing God's got this man to do. Listen to verse number 31. The Jews, therefore... Because it was preparation that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day. For that Sabbath day was a high day. That means it's, a, it's, it's Passover. It's a, it's a Jewish feast day. Besought, listen to this, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that he might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. Now, this just about makes me cringe to even think about it. They had a large wooden mallet. Those big brawly Roman soldiers, while that man's just hanging there. Listen, the nails are in his hands and feet. He can't even take his hands to protect himself. And either the knees, normally the knees or the thigh. They don't just hit him one time. They hit that man's legs till they crush his bones. Now I'll remind you that the Roman government, these soldiers are also upset because in most countries except here, they'd leave a man hanging on the cross. It would always take two to three days for him to die. Now you think about that. Take two to three. Pilate couldn't believe he died as quick as he did. But because this is a Jewish country, again, Jewish law. He can't be hanging there when the Sabbath day at six o'clock comes in. Therefore, they've got to crush 
their legs. These two thieves have not been beat like Christ. Now think about this a minute. When a man is going to die and he's got to die before 6 o'clock. Can you imagine how brutal that scourging was because they knew they had to take most of the life out of Christ before he got to the cross. He got so weak in body, he couldn't carry the whole cross. It was in two pieces. A black man, Simon Serene, carried one piece and Christ carried the other. They took a mallet and they crushed the bones in these men's legs. Why? So they couldn't push up and catch their breath. They would suffocate. They've got to die. They've got to have their body down before the Sabbath day. And that's only three hours away. Verse 33. When they came to Jesus, saw he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came blood and water. These men had no idea what they were doing. The Bible had prophesied. Now you hear me and hear me well. After all the Lord went through, bearing our sin, if this last prophecy besides his burial had not been fulfilled, he'd have been disqualified. Did you know that? Did you know if one single prophecy of Christ had not been fulfilled, he'd have been disqualified. Just like the high priest, all the elaborate preparation he had to make before going into the Holy of Holies, his bones could not be broken. When they come to Christ, they they had to know he was dead. Especially this one. Because he's already said, in three days, I'll rise again. There can be no doubt that Christ is dead. Why did they not break his legs? Because the centurion ordered them not to. An act of mercy by a Roman soldier was to not break the leg, but put a spear in a man's side because his death was so much easier and so much quicker. And this centurion had such a heart and a love for Christ. He had his side pierced, wouldn't let him break his legs, had no idea he's fulfilling two of the greatest prophecies of Christ that they pierced my side and that of my bones were broken. God's strategic man at the right time. Boy, this centurion is a changed man. I think about, what about these men standing by? These men that also confess the same thing. Don't you know this centurion had a whole lot to do with that? Joseph of Arimathea, God's got a strategic man once again. If Christ is not buried among the rich, he's disqualified. Isaiah 53 plainly said, he was numbered with the transgression and his his grave was with the rich. Did you know that a man that was convicted of insurrection could not be buried in a tomb? 
He was body. It was against Jewish or Roman law for that man's body to even be given to his family. Normally, in most countries, they left the man's body hanging for two or three weeks till the birds plucked out his eyes, till his flesh was eat off his body by insects and animals and leave him laying there as a deterrent to crime against the Roman government. But in, in Jerusalem... The, uh, the law wouldn't let them hang there and they took them down. Wouldn't let the family have them but they throwed them in the valley of Hemon where the garbage dump was and they laid them there for the fires to burn them and for insects to eat up their flesh and be demoralized. But this is all different. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, two members of the Sanhedrin, who had been secret disciples up to right now. Go beg, Joseph does, for the body of Jesus. Pilate can't believe it. He said, there ain't no way. That man ain't dead yet. I don't believe it. Mark fifteen forty four. Pilate marveled. If he was already dead, calling unto him the centurion. He asked whether he had been any while dead. Verse 45 of Mark 15. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Jesus. Again, God's strategic man at the right place. Pilate had such confidence in this centurion that when the centurion vouched that he was dead, then Pilate gave the body to this rich man that he might be laid in a rich man's tomb. Aren't you glad God's in control? And when God takes off the veil from our eyes, we'll rejoice in his providence. Yes, amen. I think of this man. Don't think for a minute he just said, yes, sir, no, sir, to Mr. Pilate, governor of Judea. He testified to him, buddy. That's the man. That's the centurion that said, truly, this is the son of God. What a witness. Dear sinner friend, don't make salvation complicated. When God removes that veil and repentance is worked in your heart and God's drawing your heart, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. What a salvation this man experienced. The most unlikely. I think of you young folks in here. You know what you are? You're God's strategic person. In the midst of your gang-saying, cursing, God-hating, Bible-denying generation. Mine was bad enough. Yours is worse. You get to be that centurion that can stand up in front of the world and your friends and say he is the son of God. And I know that Jesus lives for he lives within my heart. And what a privilege. But you can't testify. You know what? If you're called into a court 
let's say I call T-A-N or call Jesse in as my defense witnesses and the prosecutor gets them up on the stand and says, T.A., what do you know? He said, well, I know what Jesse told me. Uh, that ain't going to stand. In a court of law, you can only tell what you know and what you've seen. Not hearsay. You can't repeat what somebody else said. What you've heard or what you've seen is the only credible witness. And you can't stand in this generation and stand for God and witness for Christ unless you know he is the son of God. Amen. And that faith is sealed in your heart. You know what? There's two things that will drive you just about crazy. The first one that will drive you crazy is when you're saved and the devil's telling you you're lost and you got doubt in your mind and can't get it settled. That'll about drive you crazy. And the second thing is, is when you're lost and you won't admit it and God's saying you're lost and you're trying to convince yourself you're saved, that'll about drive you crazy too. And all the blessing when God just removes that blindness. I know when he did. And I've often said it when the Lord saved me. Again, my two favorite verses. It's like a light come on. Now, don't don't think that's got to happen to you. That's where we mess up. We think we're going to have somebody else's experience. No, you're not. Everybody gets saved the same way, but they don't have the same experience. But what that light was, God taking the veil off my eyes. Because if you got your eyes covered with a blindfold, you can't see. And God said the lost man's like a blind man groping around the darkness. God takes that veil off where you can see. And see, maybe this will be the night when that veil's totally removed. And you can cry out in your heart, God, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And he died for me. Because what good is it, him being the Son? See, the gospel, I mean, it's just like salvation. Like last week, I preached on that prodigal son. What's the whole emphasis of that? Repentance. You got to repent to be saved. I preached one night on the call of God. What's that? You got to be called of God to be saved. Another aspect's faith. God put faith in Christ to be saved. But it all comes together. And when God takes the veil off, he starts giving you light where you can understand and put real faith in Christ. Don't think for a minute, folks, that this centurion come to this decision on his own. Are you serious? God showed him. Amen. All he had to do, Jesse, was accept it when God showed him. It's like a gift. All you can do is receive a gift. And all you got to do now, if God's dealing with you and got you to that point, is to accept what God yes, showed amen. you. Don't argue with it. Don't debate it. Say, surely. <laughs> the one dealing with me is the Son of God. <laughs> surely. I say, ain't nobody knows what I've done like he does. Nobody. Knows, Jesse, nobody knows that one little word you just need to hear, but he doesn't, he give it to you. He knows that little bait to catch that little fish. He knows the right message and the right word. Ain't nobody, the son of God knows that. He knows that little sin you're hanging on to. You might not even know you're hanging on to, and God just showed you. Ain't nobody, God read your mind like that. Read your heart. Give you faith to believe it, but he can. Let's stand on our feet. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.